the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Listeners, welcome today Nick Patterson, PharmD. Nick recently gave a lecture at our Phoenix meeting titled Postoperative Pain Management. Nick, thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners exactly what a clinical pharmacy practitioner is and what your job is like, and maybe a little bit of background? The clinical pharmacy practitioner is really a new designation that's come out recently. So in years past, you've had the regular pharmacists, which everybody know from your inpatient pharmacy, working outpatient retail, and that had been morphed into a clinical pharmacist for a while. And the purpose of a clinical pharmacist was to work inpatient, go on rounds, really to take some of the load off providers, be able to manage vancomycin or gentamicin, aminoglycosides in general, warfarin. That way, those providers could see more patients in a day. Now, with the with the push of the clinical pharmacy practitioner, which the VA and DOD is utilizing. And when I say DOD, I mean the Army, Navy, Air Force, hopefully Space Force, Coast Guard as well, is that you have an actual pharmacist in the clinic managing patients one-on-one. We have a schedule. Our patients come in their appointments. We sit and we have a regular office visit like providers do, except we focus on the medications, the lifestyle changes, less about the diagnosis in general is what we do. With our scope of practice, we have the ability to manage just about anything out there that providers feel comfortable with. We have prescriptive authority, and I actually have a DEA number to write controlled substances as well uh, due to my collaborative practice agreement. Pretty amazed at that one because I've never known a pharmacist to have a DEA number before. We have the ability to do acupuncture, regular acupuncture in clinic, and I am going to be learning how to do cupping pretty soon to be able to add that to the repertoire of things we can do to assist providers. And the main goal of us is to really be a point of contact for managing those high-risk medications, managing high-risk disease states in general, and improve access to care for our clinic providers. Plus, we have sure. an IPAP program here. So IPAP is Inter-Service Physician Assistant Program, and we are the largest phase two site in the Army. So this is a program that goes through the University of Nebraska College of Medicine, where we have PA students to do the first year again in San Antonio at what we call the schoolhouse. And then their second year, they decentralize to one of the military treatment facilities. And so I get to work one-on-one and teach a lot of therapeutics to our PA students, which is great because we're able to expand knowledge base in students, and it's great in developing those one-on-one relationships. Because as you guys know, that whole interaction between pharmacy and PAs or NPs or DOs can sometimes be fractured. I'll I'll admit us pharmacists aren't the best at that stuff. But in developing that one-on-one, it makes it much easier to have that teamwork. And just this morning, I'm getting text messages from my PAs that are in Europe asking me about how this is done or what I think about this in general. I've got emails and phone calls from the Middle East before about it because those relationships are so important since we are decentralized and managing patients all over the world. That's pretty cool stuff. I had Benny from my local family pharmacist. I would call if I had a question or the hospital if I had a question, but what you do there is great. I wish I had access to something like that. Well, that's awesome. I I had not heard of that before, and I'm glad you were able to tell us more about it. So, Nick, if we're talking about postoperative pain, let's switch gears and talk about the goals of therapy 
What are the goals of therapy of postoperative pain and how can you assess their pain? I mean, are there pain scales or scoring systems? Please go through that a little bit with us. I wish I could say there was one pain scale that ruled them all because that would make things a lot easier. But the fact of the matter is none of the pain scales have really been compared. So the pain scale that's going to be best is going to be pretty much depending on which patient population you're working in. If you're going to be children, the Wongs-Baker pain scale is best. But for the DOD and VA, we use what's called the DOD-VA pain scale. Now, is it the best? I wouldn't say it's the best. Like I said, there's no objective data that says that. But it does take into context the change in activities of daily living along with the FACES scale, along with the numeric scale as well. So being able to have a good standardized scale that all of your staff is familiar with is the most important part. And by that, I mean, not just like a company that's like, hey, we use a visual analog scale, but just making sure they go through and understand how to rate the patient with that scale is the most important. And I think post-operative pain management in general is always going to be a little bit more difficult. And the reason why is because people have just gone through a pretty... I mean, if you would say, what did we do 200 years ago? It's pretty horrific. These days, what the physician assistant orthopedic surgeons and orthopods do in general is very minimal because of the use of scopes. But at the same aspect, we're still causing some pretty deep tissue damage there. And pain control can be difficult. So we have to use a multifaceted approach to that. And that starts in the preoperative period making sure we have Tylenol board. Just regular old Tylenol does a lot for decreasing postoperative pain. Having Celebrex on board, we say NSAIDs in general, but we know from the data from the Cochrane reviews that celecoxib is the drug of choice for that because it does have a lot of decreased postoperative complications with it. Now, you'll have some people that say don't use Celebrex in the ones in the people that have had a history of cabbage, a cardiovascular bypass graft, or a history of stents. And I would say that's probably true for the most part. But in a majority of patients out there that have an orthopedic procedure, Celebrex on board beforehand is going to be a huge benefit for what goes on. And during surgery, I'm a huge fan of ketamine as well. Ketamine does not cause respiratory depression. It's a good uh, symbiotic relationship with other opioids that are being used as well, along with your regional nerve blocks, which are shown to decrease pain post-surgically and decrease opioid requirements significantly. Those are the ones that I push over and over again. And one more part of that is with your regional nerve blocks, making sure that you have the ability to use visual aids in doing that, whether it be ultrasound and using bupivacaine or using a nerve block that has the longest uh, bupivacaine or Expirel, something with a long onset will reduce the opioid requirements post-surgery as well. Awesome. Good information and a lot of information. We we jumped a little bit ahead. I wanted to back up just a second and talk a little bit more about the Tylenol because it, mm-hmm. it, a couple of reasons. In my experience now in clinical practice, I have a lot of patients, especially older populations, and Tylenol works great. So always consider Tylenol. But in the operative realm, it also helps a lot. But you said in your uh, lecture that there are some concerns when you're dosing people with acetaminophen. What are some of those concerns? With a majority of our population, if you're using Tylenol less than seven days, they have no liver abnormalities, they are normal weight, no malnutrition, four grams a day is completely fine. If you have to use it greater than seven days, then you're going to go to three grams or less. And if people have low weight, malnutrition, history of alcohol abuse, if they have a history of liver dysfunction, including cirrhosis or including um, ascites, 
Basically, if their child Pew score is elevated, then you want to decrease it to two grams a day or less. Now, for most of your surgical patients, that doesn't change your pre-surgical dose at all, but it will change how you dose it post-surgical. And I know all of us, and I'm sure you had this in school as well, it grabbed your head like no more than four grams a day. And for normal people, that's the case. But just remember, if there is, if you're going to be going longer than seven days, or maybe you have somebody who's been controlling their knee pain with chronic Tylenol anyway, those patients, you don't exceed three grams a day post-surgical to make sure you don't have any LFT abnormalities. Gotcha. Perfect. Perfect. And the NSAIDs, you had mentioned the celecoxib. Do you ever recommend IV toradol interoperatively, postoperatively? Is that used or is it selectively COX-2 inhibitors? And you had mentioned preoperatively the COX-2s. Do you recommend that patients continue these post-op? For majority of patients, it's safe for them to continue post-op for 30 days or longer in most patients with celecoxib because the chance for GI irritation is relatively low. The chance for bleeding with COX-2 inhibitors is also relatively low as well, which is why we have no trouble giving them before surgery. They don't increase interoperative bleeding during surgery or post-surgery as well. Don't increase the risk of hematoma. But for Toradol, I don't recommend Toradol before or during surgery because it can increase that bleeding risk. And with patients who are on Toradol, especially during surgery, you can have some renal abnormalities that can occur. Now, keep in mind, the recommendations in Toradol actually come from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And most of the patients that we're going to be seeing in surgery or even in clinic on a day-to-day basis aren't very sick patients. They're just patients in pain overall. So a lot of those Toradol recommendations don't apply to them. But before surgery, during surgery, I wouldn't recommend Toradol post-surgical as long as you have bleeding control and as long as the patient's relatively healthy. I think Toradol is fine post-surgical. Awesome. Awesome. Listeners, please stay tuned for next week when Nick Patterson talks about gabapentinoids, ketamine, IV lidocaine, and IV magnesium sulfate. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.